This is the Saturday Morning Confidential Serial Killer Radio Hour. Welcome back, everyone. For today's interview, I have someone who is responsible for several of my favorite childhood toys and the reason why I still collect toys today. She's a toy designer, artist, illustrator, and published author. Please help me welcome Stephanie Iskander. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Maddie. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really pleased you invited me to come and chat with you today. Of course. So we're in, we're recording this and we're all still kind of in COVID times. How has that been treating you uh, just as a, as a human being? Well, it's interesting because it was only about a week and a half or so after I got back from New York Toy Fair in February that everything hit. Mm-hmm. And Toy Fair was, um, you know, was spectacular. And I'm so glad that it happened before everything shut down because I was able to reconnect with a lot of friends and um, associates, colleagues and things. And so actually my business has been great. That's awesome. uh, I continued to freelance, continue to design, um, uh, continue to, you know, network with friends. And so it's, it's really been a creative time for me. So no complaints. I love that. That's awesome. I love anybody that's been able to keep going creative. And I've, you know, I'm in theater side of things, so we haven't been able to do much, but seeing everybody still be able to like dive in and do creative things that they might not have had time for before. So I'm, I'm loving seeing all of our creative beings being the ones that are still kind of pushing and and creating things uh, now. So I think my first question for you is just jumping in. What made you go into toy design? Well, you know, I think as I look back on it now, it's kind of a natural progression. But at the time, it seemed really like a big leap of faith. Um, I actually started out my career after college as a an advertising illustrator. Okay. And I also was a children's magazine illustrator. And so I, I was an advertising illustrator for 10 years after college before I discovered the toy industry. So... I was kind of an oldster by the time I got into toys, um, you know, 30, how many years? 35 plus years ago. So it wasn't a career aspiration, but because I didn't really even know that toy design as a career existed. You know, Mm -hmm. I always wanted to, from the time I was a little girl, I wanted to illustrate children's books. So my artwork has always followed a children's path. Mm-hmm. When I was in college studying illustration, a lot of my work was, uh, you know, looked like, you know, was done for children's magazines and children's art. And so I continued that, even though I was doing advertising work, uh, gradually through the years, um, like I said, I was doing that for 10 years after college, my work more and more became focused on children's accounts. So, for example, I did illustrations for Denny's restaurants for their children's program. I did bibs and and trays and children's menus. I did uh, storyboard art for Mattel's ad agency, for Tomy's ad agency. Um, And I started doing children's product illustration for a small company called Small World Toys in Los Angeles. And uh, that was how I kind of got my introduction into the toy industry I was freelancing for their ad agency. I designed a couple of doll boxes for them, packaging illustration. 
and this was 1981, so you're kind of getting an idea of the time frame. And then um, they hired me directly, the toy company did, not their ad agency, to mm -hmm. design a line of puzzles for them in 1982. So I did the line of puzzles, did the illustrations. So I really was kind of a toy illustrator, mm -hmm. not so much a 3D person. And uh, But I continued to do my other advertising work. And then in 1984, I heard that Mattel was having a, a job fair. And I was living in Southern California, living in Hollywood at the time. And I had a friend who worked at Mattel, and she told me about this job fair. So because my portfolio was already pretty strong with children's mm -hmm. work, I had um, you know, several accounts. I had also, you know, done sample artwork for a children's television workshop and other children's magazines. So I had a good portfolio and I took it to this job fair and they hired me just like that. So, that was amazing. uh, that was pretty amazing. And it was a big leap because when I started, when I went to work my very first day, I went to meet with the woman who had hired me and she said, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to work in the packaging department or do you want to do product design? And I was really confused because packaging illustration kind of made sense because my background was more illustration, graphic design, and I was comfortable with 2D, but that didn't quite sound as much fun as product design. And so I said product design, That I think I'd rather do that. And I mean, that was just one of those decisions that changed my life. You know, you look at those those you know turning points in your life and decisions that you make that change the whole trajectory of your life and your career and that was really it for me so I went to work at Mattel and was in the large and small dolls group was not in Barbie did not you know don't, I don't have a fashion background so I wasn't really interested in being in the Barbie group but I was doing large and small dolls and at that time that was uh, Rainbow Bright it was Lady Lovely Locks My Child and we developed Popples Mm, that came while that. I was there. And, and so, you know, I, those were the lines that I worked on. That's awesome. Uh, so, you, you know, you bring up kind of the time it was. And so the 80s saw a time where companies started advertising the toy products directly to children and making them more kind of appealing to kids. What was it like jumping from advertising into toys at that point from uh, how you would, I guess, was there a big difference in how you addressed developing a marketing campaign versus developing the toys themselves for the company? I actually think it was, was it really easy for me to make that right. transition because as a freelance advertising illustrator, I was used to working with art directors. I was used to working with style guides, you know, which is what the licensor um, gives the licensee to do the artwork. You have to follow it exactly. And so, you know, I was used to working under those parameters. And because of that, going into toys, just it really was natural, it seemed really natural. I didn't chafe under the restrictions of uh, working with a licensed property. Although personally, I'm not crazy about working with licenses. I'd rather work with original standalone products but uh you know it didn't it wasn't hard for me i think somebody who came from a different kind of a background uh, either fine arts or perhaps uh, even industrial design might struggle a little bit with the restrictions that all of that entertainment brought in but to me it seemed really natural nice i love that that's fantastic i mean and i guess when you understand the aesthetics of marketing for child products developing the child products it's 
kind of hand in hand with that. Uh, but you, you talked about the difference between developing something original and developing something from a property. Uh, so for me, one of the biggest toys, which as, as kind of a boy growing up, I never got to have them. So I've been collecting them as an adult are, uh, is Jim and the holograms. Um, and I know you did some work on one of the, the, the later lines for Jim. So I want to talk to you about Jim kind of for a moment. What was it like jumping in? Cause you were at Mattel, but you weren't in Barbie. Um, and I know, Jem was not at Mattel. What was it like to jump into something like Jem that was a competitor for Barbie, but also was like selling millions of copies of cassettes of pop music to, to young girls? Uh, what was that like? You know, I, I, it was a little scary, I have to say. When I um, arrived at Hasbro in February of 1986, Jem um, had just been introduced at Toy Fair. Yeah. And so I did not work on the first year at all. But one of the things that I think a lot of people um, are not really, really don't have an understanding about how the toy business works, especially larger toy companies, is you're almost never working on one thing. You're always working on many things. And so when I arrived at Hasbro, I was immediately assigned to work on Moon Dreamers, Real Baby, Gem, and um, then there were some other properties that later that were canceled that I was working on. So I was working on three lines to start with the first year. And my very first assignment was um, to develop a pet for Jim. Uh, Jim, the, the line that, was, that we were going to promote in the cartoon series, which I was not really, that mm-hmm. was not really involved in, was that Jim was going to go on world tour. And she mm-hmm. was going to travel all over the world. And so we wanted Jem to go to these different places and have a pet. And about the same time, Barbie had introduced Prince, the dog. You remember Prince was a standard poodle. And it was really kind of cleverly constructed. It was, it was fabric, but it was constructed over an armature, a plastic armature, so mm-hmm. that it was uh, articulated. And it was a good size. It was a standard poodle, so it was tall. And I was quite taken with Prince. And so um, when they assigned me to work on this project, they said, you know, you can, you know, have a brainstorm with the team. You can come up with some ideas and pitch them to us. So uh, I was head of the project, but I had some of my, my coworkers and we got together and had some brainstorms and we came up with several ideas and of course, the one that got the the green light was Jim's pet llama, uh, which uh, I love. It's it's as ridiculous as that show absolutely got. So, what made them kind of fall into a llama choice for Jim? Well, Jim was going to go to South America, you know, mm-hmm. in this, and of course, what better um, creature, what better animal to represent, you know, the Andes would be than a llama, and the. The thing that was that meant that, that was really the clincher for me. I had to come up with an animal that was a scale that was a reasonable scale. We didn't want a cat or right. or a small dog or you know something small. It had to be something that had a presence that could be sold not as coming with Jim but as a separate mm-hmm. accessory. And so a llama also worked in the scale because it was not as big as a horse, but it mm-hmm. was and alone. Now, of course, those of you who are fans of Jem know that this uh, llama was eventually sold as a mail-in premium, mm-hmm. but it was not meant to be that way. It was meant to be 
you know, have a box and be sold at the stores as an, you know, as a pet. And there were going to be other, you know, animals as she went on this world tour. Eventually the world tour was dropped, but uh, I can, I developed, that was much later. I developed the llama and was looking at other animals that we could do. I know we were considering a koala. I was concerned that the scale was wrong, but it would make a great toy. You know, the scale was a little small. Uh, You know, we looked at some other kinds of large cats. I, you know, didn't want to do anything that was too ordinary, like a horse, uh, because that Barbie had a million horses. So the llama just seemed to work. And so that was my very first experience with um, designing for Jim. But then almost immediately, I was assigned the line extension, the second year holograms to design. And that I was, I, I admit, I was a little intimidated by that because I didn't have a fashion background. But hey, you know, I could draw. I had done some right. fashion. Right. It just wasn't my background. And so I jumped in and, and created the second year holograms was also then given synergy. And part of Rhea, uh, she was partly designed, her outfit was designed, but because she became part of the holograms end of things, I was given her to do her face. And she was my first gem doll that I did the face makeup for. And I was very nervous because Jim was so out there and sophisticated and mm-hmm. wild. I was nervous that I wasn't going to be able to create something that was going to be either edgy enough or that was going to meet my boss's approval. But somehow it worked out and Rhea turned out beautifully. And that's, that's my story. I love that. Well, and you know, that is, it's, it's so interesting because Jim is about the fashion, like most of it, you know, it, it's true. You know, Jim, that, that tagline of truly outrageous, I think is the one thing that's really stuck with people, whether they really remember Jim. Um, and you brought the scale up and it's something everybody, it's the one thing a lot of people remember is that she was too big for Barbie clothing. So mm-hmm. only Jim clothing fit, fit Jim. And so that scale, I imagine the scale of needing a pet that went with her several pets was difficult because she was a little bit taller than the rest of those kind of standard fashion dolls. And I followed a little bit on your Instagram, the, the, the search for the shoes for Rhea, for for your (laughs) your doll, which I love. I love that so much. Um, And I love her because she has that beautiful skin tone, but then she also has that great pink hair. And so I, and and for the viewers who, you know, like Rhea, when she was produced, they gave her such awful pale pink lipstick that was mm-hmm. not the color that I originally designed. So I took my Rhea doll and uh, gave her the proper lip color that she should have. It wasn't a dark pink, but it was a much more flattering pink that went with her hair and her face. I love that. Well, and so I know you mentioned you were working on several things, and that's kind of how uh, there were, uh, you know, there have been the toy series, a docu-series on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us, which I think they've done kind of a really fun job, though the gem has only gotten brought up because it's in the Barbie episode and they were very pleased that they were able to kill the line or whatnot, which makes me so upset and angry just as like an artist. I go, but so that's not what I want to talk about. Um, I want to transition just a little bit. You talked about Moon Dreamers, which I have a memory of. I didn't have any of the, the dolls, but what I did have uh, which is something interesting, and I know this happens. I thought it was something that kind of happened now. I didn't, and then I figured that's eh, probably something that's happened. You said that one of your Moon Dreamer heads that you developed was actually used for the head for Megan for the My Little Pony line. Um, the the second edition Megan. Yes, the, the second Megan. 
Yeah, the late 80s, Megan. I think uh, she came in 89. Yes. Uh, yeah, and that was the Megan that I actually had because we didn't get the first one. Um, so did that, as, as someone that, you know, kind of working in toy, and you brought this up with how the Barbie poodle was uh, uh, the armature and kind of how it was constructed. Um, as a costume designer, sometimes I design without any thought of kind of how we're going to construct it. I kind of design it and then I talk with my shop and go, okay, can we do it? When you're designing a toy like that, and I assume reusing a head or reusing an armature, those kinds of things is common. Um, but when you were de developing the llama and whatnot, um, you have a picture of the prototype that was uh, came over from Asia. Uh, how much of the development of the actual like technical construction and how it's going to be developed, how much of that did you have to think about when you were designing the toy? Oh, I, I gave it a lot of thought. Um, we're going to have to pause for a second because I have oh, yeah. to wrap my brain for a second. A minute. I have to think of the, um, the toy that, shoot, the, the, we had a toy, or I don't know if it was Play School or Hasbro. I, I keep, Wuzzles keeps coming to my mind, but it's not Wuzzles. <laughs> it's, um, it's the line of toys that's vinyl and then has fur on it that Hasbro mm. did. It might have been Play School. Can you, can you give me just a second? And yeah, yeah, you're good. Take your time. I should have boned up on that, but I wasn't even thinking about that as being a question. No, you're good. Um, let's see, Play School... Final let's see. I better put a year in there. Maybe I better put Hasbro on this. And I'm gonna kick myself when it comes up. <laughs> I, I do that constantly. Sorry about that. You're okay. Hmm. Why is it coming up with popples? That's Mattel. You're, you're going to also say it, and I'm going to go, oh, yes, I had five of them. <laughs> of course you are. It, they were little vinyl critters, like about mm -hmm. the size of My Little Ponies. They had plush. They were all kinds of, all kinds of different animals. Um, but the plush was glued on. Okay, let me try again, vinyl. Some of them were like, birds with like clicking oh I, that just kicked a guttural memory in my brain uh, no they did, not the birds um boy wait snug snuggle bums yeah i think it was snuggle bums oh i do not remember these yeah snuggle bums that's Great. what they were they were, um, I don't know if you can see. Yep, I just pulled them up here too. Yeah, I don't remember these at all. Okay, so now I'm prepared. So Good. how shall I back into this? Um, we can, if we just give a little silence, I can pull it out, drop it, and drop it right in. Okay.
So I came up with the idea of how to uh, construct the llama because of a Hasbro toy that was out at the time called Snuggle Bums. And these were cute little vinyl, rotomolded vinyl critters that had plush. And how they were constructed was when the when they had they had an indentation in the mold mm-hmm. so that the actual vinyl critter had a little indent. Mm-hmm. And then they were in in the factory, they glued the plush into that indentation so there was no edge you couldn't see the edge of the plush and i was so enchanted by how those were made that i immediately knew that that's how the llama should be made so sometimes you don't know how things should be made you just Mm -hmm. like you said you just say figure out how to do it we all have engineers most toy companies have engineers Mm -hmm. or the factory has an engineer and so that, that's their job to figure things out. But in this case, I knew exactly how I wanted it to be done. And so it was sculpted that way with that indentation. And then when it was sent to the factory, they were able to glue the plush in and you couldn't see the edge, so it couldn't be pulled out. And so that yellow llama that I have on my Instagram and that I carry around with me, that was um, what we call a first shot, mm-hmm. which is the factory sends you back samples for approval. And it could be um, fabric approval, it could be color approval, it could be construction approval. Sometimes it's just complete approval, everything is right. In this case, they wanted us to look at the length of the plush, how it was constructed to make sure it was right, but it was not the right color. And so I believe they sent us a box of six and I snagged two of them and I've carted them around with me for all these years. So I have a yellow gem llama in addition to my pink ones. I love that. Um, well, that's that's great. And I'm going to, uh, we'll connect your social media with ours when when this comes out because I love your renderings. And as a costume designer, I've spent a lot of time geeking out over them because there's always the question when you're working, um, whether it's for human people or designing puppets and things like I've done in theater, you want the rendering to like embody everything. And I just love what your renderings tend to embody, uh, whether it's you've been going back and re-rendering some of your old projects or uh, showing some of the uh, examples from the portfolio you presented for the Mattel job. but uh, what are some, and I, there was one that I really loved where you talked about, it was your first transition between using um, like hand rendering versus digital rendering. When that started coming about, what were some of the benefits that you found in kind of transitioning in using a digital medium versus kind of a, a hand-drawn on paper medium? There's, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack in that because there I have a lot about about hand rendering versus computer rendering. Mm -hmm. I will say that there's very little that I do today that's 100% computer rendered. Um, I still do a lot of rendering by hand. However, um, I do use the computer for a lot of things. Um, One of the things that, um, that I really feel strongly about is trying to make my drawings look like a toy Mm-hmm. rather than make them look like an animated character. I don't want them to be stiff, but you know, part of the job of a, of a designer is to sell the concept to your mm-hmm. 
your management team, right? So you have to, uh, if you're an inventor, you've got to sell it to your inventor relations person of the toy company you're presenting it to. If you're an in-house designer, you've got to try to sell it to your upper management staff when you have presentations. And so um, most people are very literal. And so if you do a rendering that looks too animated, Mm-hmm. Then there's always a disappointment because the toy is stiff by its nature, right? It it loses something. But then again, you don't want to do your drawing so stiff that it's like a robot. Right. You want it to have a little bit of personality. So I find that drawing by hand enables me to pursue that kind of natural feeling. When you do things on the computer, they tend to be a little bit more exact you know if you make a mistake you make one eye a little higher than the other it's really easy to just get in there and fix it really quickly if you're doing it by hand you've got to redraw it or redraw part of it so um you know there's advantages to both and there's times when i only use the computer uh when i do label art for example i use the computer i use adobe illustrator when i do technical drawings i use the computer um but and, and a lot of those labels and you know parts of the toy like artwork that's on the front of a toy on the little shirt or whatever drawing those on the computer has been a real natural transition but drawing something entirely on the computer has not been um anything that i've been completely on board with so i still do almost everything however I do have a tool that I got a couple of years ago that I use a lot. And that's my, um, it's a program called Procreate that I use on mm-hmm. my iPad with okay. an Apple Pencil. And it's, it's, it would be like, like having a Cintiq, which is the expensive Wacom tablet that yep. uh, allows you to draw right on the screen. And so those kinds of uh, illustrations, I know a lot of designers use either their um, Cintiq or a Procreate kind of a program to give that hand-drawn feeling, but still the advantage of the computer where you can undo, you can make changes quickly. Um, I, but I, again, my scanner is still my best friend. I, mm-hmm. I, I have reams and reams of tracing paper. I always draw everything on tracing paper. I scan it, import it into Photoshop, and then I um, do the color work generally I don't do the color work by hand anymore so I stopped doing I mean I know exactly when all that happened Mm -hmm. Um, although I never really stopped drawing by hand about the year 2000 that's when I got my first iMac I had been freelancing for a couple of years I left Mattel at the end of 97 and I'd been freelancing for a couple of years but those computers were expensive and we didn't you know I, I wasn't very well trained in them yet so it took me a couple of years to save up enough money to buy my computer so I did and that's when I started you know I still was drawing by hand but I was scanning and then doing my color in Photoshop so there's a definite delineation but if you look at my drawings either in my book or on my Instagram you can still see that they were hand drawn but the color is smooth looks like it was airbrushed you know it's very tightly done and and for me that worked really really well to do the color but still keep that hand-drawn feel 
I love that. I do. I do the exact same thing. I actually have always fought tracing paper and procreate. And then this year, the last year of my master's, I went, you know what? And then there's something, cause I still do a lot of my coloring on the paper just for class projects and things I did. And, uh, but just kind of that beautiful sheerness, but how you can mix colors yeah. on the tracing paper. I went, oh, I why it. have I never done this, done this? But then I finally bit the bullet and did procreate this year. And it, change just the difference of being able to drop textures in and the layers that we can do and theater directors I feel like are probably a lot like um product producers and the money people that you want to be able to switch stuff out quickly and so I was able to be like okay cool we'll hide this layer let's pop this layer in because I knew we're going to ask this question and so I feel like it probably makes your creative process as well go a lot quicker so it's not 15 emails back and forth it can be a oh here's both of those versions you asked for but I'm I'm I love that even though our two industries are very different we're using a lot of those same things and I love my iMac I I was my next question was going to be PC or Mac, but it's, it's been, definitely Mac. it's been uh, delightful. I, I've never used this. anything else. You know, I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't know what to do. I finally converted my husband to Mac for, for, he was a PC guy for decades. Mm-hmm. And finally he, he got a MacBook pro. I don't know. It's probably been 10 years now. And mm-hmm. he's uh, he, he understands. I, and I know that there's always, you know, issues mm-hmm. with, with the companies and with technology and why are they doing things the way they are? And mm-hmm. you know, it was a hard switch when um, the Creative Suite subscription service came out because yes. it was very expensive <laughs> and mm-hmm. it was hard to, you know, we all have complaints about that. But once I bit the bullet, you know, and, and subscribed, you know, I don't ever have to worry about my program being updated. It's updated all the time. So uh, it's made my life a lot easier. And I've had a few times where I forgot to put it on a zip drive. And because that creative cloud, uh, yeah. it's, it's, saved, it's saved in that breath where I went, <gasps> you know, because oh. you... sorry, go ahead. Speaking of that, something funny. Um, the other day I was uh, out with my I have, uh, grandchildren that live nearby and I was uh, right, driving, or I was walking my little one-year-old granddaughter and our, my grand puppy to the park to play, and so I had the stroller, and I have a little grandson who was on his scooter, and he was riding ahead of us. And I put my iPad. I take my iPad with me everywhere because I like to draw when I'm out and about. Mm-hmm. So I had it, and I put it on the top of the stroller, and I'm just walking down the street, and it fell, fell off, and landed on the sidewalk. But it was in a case. I didn't really mm-hmm. think anything about it and so when I got it wasn't until I got home that I opened the case and I saw that it was completely shattered I was so upset because you know this is my tool and so I I thought okay I'm gonna have to get it repaired so I was nervous about you know it's gonna be in the shop and I'm not gonna be able to use my program and everything anyway I took it into the to the uh, Apple store the Mac dealership that I go to and they you know, we looked at it and I decided to upgrade and get a new one. So I did. And I had been really nervous that all of my procreate drawings were going to be lost. Mm-hmm. And I, I went online and I looked at, you know, the troubleshooting and how do you, cause I just thought, I just can't, what if, even though it says it's going to be saved, what if it isn't, you know, I've yeah. got hundreds of drawings mm-hmm. on my, and so I was trying to import them. I was trying to put them on my, my iMac mm-hmm. And so I just, I, I did my best. And then I went into the, the Apple store and they gave me my new, my new iPad, came home, logged in, 
everything was there. I mean, I didn't have any problem. It was like, yeah, I I mean, I just, I had anticipated losing something and I just thought, wow, technology. Cause I guess all these messages of people who'd lost all their procreate were from several years old, you know, were, were from years back. And so it's improved and everything was still there and I, it was seamless. So I'm back in business. I love that. That's so great. Listen, I also always say, because I've been with Apple probably 15 years, I've been using Apple products constantly. And I, one time, I, I, I always bought the Apple Care and never used it. And then the one time that I was like, you know what, I'm going to get rid of it. My hard drive wiped and I was so happy I didn't because they replaced everything. They even upgraded me because they couldn't replace it with what I had before. And so I was like, it's, that was one of those adult moments I found yeah. that I just went, oh, always get that Apple Care. Yeah. Go in and see them right away. <laughs> they will they will take care of yes, you. Yes, they will take care of you. Yeah, it was great. So I have one more rendering question for you because uh, there was another one from your, I believe it was the Metallica portfolio that I just thought was awesome and as again as a costume designer it was something that I was like why haven't I done this before because I always have swatches but there is a doll that you mocked up that you draped the actual gingham on and you folded the edges and it so it gave it this beautiful three-dimensional uh depth even though it was kind of a flat rendering was that something that you did often or did you do that just because it was a portfolio and so you had some time to do that no, I, I actually did it um, a, a bit during the 80s. I, I'm trying to remember. The last, I, I must have done it for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. I know I did it while I was at Hasbro and at Fisher Price. So um, here, the thing is, I don't sew. Probably for you, that must seem like blasphemy because I'm sure you do. But uh, not well, <laughs> not, not well, but enough to get by. <laughs> as a toy designer, that was an interesting thing because when I got into girls' toys, into mm-hmm. dolls, um, I discovered that uh, we had a lot of people that could sew. I didn't sew. Interesting. And I found that people who could draw seemed to have more value to the company than people who could sew. And I don't mean this in any disparaging way because mm-hmm. I have so much incredible respect for people who can sew they've saved my butt so many times (laughs) because of their you know what we call them sample makers or the sewers or whatever you want to call the different people who do the sewing these are extremely talented people but um i i was often told that if i learned to sew that i would be expected to sew and because of that, it would cut down on my design time because okay. I would be spending too much time sewing. And so I purposely did not develop my sewing skills. And so actually, this was kind of a way to, because I didn't sew, mm-hmm. it was kind of a way to uh, avoid having to make samples of things. If I could do a drawing, and I did this a lot where I would make a, a drawing of a doll that was, you know, maybe this high, mm-hmm. I would print it or take the real drawing, I'd mount it on foam core, cut it out, and then I would drape fabric on it to make the outfit. So I did that for uh, Dolly Surprise when I was at Hasbro, um, a number of products. And, And honestly, I don't know if that was an idea that I had that was completely original or whether I saw somebody do it, but it it seemed to work. I, I don't do it anymore. And I kind of wonder why I don't do it anymore. But uh, do you remember those? Um, there was a line of little fashion dolls back in the 
Hades, maybe that you would take fabric and you just put them into slots. Oh yeah. Make, um, and I don't remember what they were called. You could make little fashions. So I guess it was kind of like a version of that, but yeah, it was really fun. And it was, of course that rendering has been in my port that you're referring to has been in my portfolio for 35 years. So it's gotten a little flat, but at the time I did it, the little gathers, it was kind of poofy and looked rather cute. So it was a, it was um, a cheater's way to not so, but still do something that was striking. Mm -hmm. Well, and you can say that, you know, you, your gathers look lovely in that. So I was, I was, that's why I was sitting there and I was like, oh, it looks like it was sewn and then put down. But it was also something that I went, wow, I can't think of how many times that I went, well, the skirt's going to be, it's going to hang like this. I promise it'll hang like this. And I went, man, if I literally just mounted the fabric and done the tiny gather, they would have seen what it was going to look yeah, like. Yeah. So it was, again, it was one of those things, uh, you know, I, I think I'm going to have to borrow that the next, <laughs> the next show that I do. I, do. I did not have it. Um, well, and so earlier you you brought up your book, so I'd love to chat with you a little bit about your book. And so, uh, which I was bummed to find out that it's sold out, but uh, you did also say in your Instagram about a week ago that you were working on a revised uh, edition of your book, and your book is called Toy Stories, The Secret Life of a Toy Designer. Um, for, for anyone listening, uh, she just held it up. It's lovely. What led you to want to share your stories with the world? It's, I owe it all to Instagram. Um, you know, I... I have a little story about how this all started because one of the things that, that people need to understand about any kind of a, an industry like toys, mm -hmm. like movie industry or other entertainment industries is we rely on, on, on confidentiality in our businesses. Mm -hmm. If you're working on a movie, right? You're in a movie. Yep. You don't talk about it unless your movie company chooses to reveal what's going right. on. We, have, we all sign non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements. We don't talk about the things that we've done. So I spent, you know, I, I've been in the toy industry for 35 plus years, and I spent 32 of them not ever talking about it, mm -hmm. honestly. You know, I just, um, mm -hmm. I would talk about it in general, but I really couldn't talk about it specifically. I, right. I think the first time I was ever asked to do a presentation about toy design was a university invited me to come and speak to their illustration department back in the early 2000s. And I was able to put together a PowerPoint show and show some of the toys that I designed that had been released. But I had had this horrible feeling that in my career, probably 75% or more of the things that I designed were never released. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we, I couldn't really talk about them right. for whatever reason. Either it was too recent or they, were, they could possibly be released, and so you don't mm -hmm. talk about them. But, but by about 2018, um, I, I think I had done enough talks. I do career days at schools. Mm -hmm. I was teaching a university class. I would come and do presentations at colleges and high schools and middle schools and stuff and just show the stuff that I designed. But finally, I was getting um, kind of encouragement from some people who followed me on Instagram. Uh, I had a, I have several accounts, but my regular account uh, where occasionally I would share a toy. And um, I was invi actually invited to come and be a guest at GemCon in 2018, and at about the same time that I that I accepted that, that was in the 
spring, winter, spring of 2018, I was also contacted by the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, mm-hmm. and asked if I would be willing to donate some of my design archives to their museum. Oh. And I was very familiar with the Strong Museum mm-hmm. when I worked at uh, Toys R Us, I mean, um, sorry, Fisher-Price. Uh, the Strong Museum was about an hour and a half drive away. And so we designers would go there because they had wonderful toy collections. Mm-hmm. And so I was familiar with this museum. So I was honored to have been asked to do that. So that all kind of corresponded with GemCon. And so just before GemCon, I started my Instagram account mm-hmm. for just with to- uh, talking about toys called Steph Designs Toys. And I just got such a huge outpouring of support that I decided I was, I didn't want to just share my toys that I designed and just say, I designed this. Mm-hmm. I wanted to write a little bit of information about it, you know, tell, well, why did I do this? Or, mm-hmm. you know, what was the story behind it? And so I was, and still do writing sometimes very lengthy paragraphs to introduce this product. Mm-hmm. And people would say, you should write a book. You should write a book. So that was kind of the impetus for writing a book. So last year, um, last spring, I introduced Toy Stories and it's 56 pages, which at the time seemed like a really a lot. It's, uh, it's, you know, jammed. It's mostly, you know, Mm -hmm. pictures with some type, uh, some stories, some little secrets that I tell. And I thought it was pretty complete, but I, I kept thinking, Oh, I've, I've got more in me but I didn't really want to write another book. You know what I mean? I didn't want to write volume two. So what I decided to do was to do a a new edition of this book. So it's almost double in size. It's a hundred pages. I'm I'm on about the last two or three pages and I'm, then I'm starting the editing process. I was hoping to have it done um, earlier in the month, but you know, I'm assuming that it'll go to the printer in the next couple of weeks and, and it'll be ready, uh, November, December, something like that. So I'm self-publishing it, but I have a wonderful printer and they do a fabulous job. So uh, it'll be available soon. Awesome. What are some things that folks uh, at home can look forward to that you've added from the first edition? Oh, well, you were talking about technology. I wrote a Mm -hmm. whole section on how technology has changed and how it's Mm -hmm. changed my career. I added a, a lot more about some of the uh, jaw lines that I worked on at Hasbro. I think I just talked about, um, oh, I talked about the llama and and the holograms, but I this time I talked about Synergy and Rhea. I talked about more of the Dolly Surprise dolls that I worked on. And uh, I, I just fleshed out something. And then I've, I've got a section that I'm just finishing up now on... Um, how a toy is produced, you know, oh, the, steps, mm-hmm. the steps in development from concept through production and, you know, some details about what we designers do to um, come up with ideas. And I talked about brainstorming mm-hmm. and, you know, I, it, it really, it's like a whole new book. So, and, and of course, some of the pages that I'd already done needed to be changed just a mm-hmm. little bit. Uh, either updated or just changed a little bit to kind of blend with the new pages. So I'm really excited. It should be a lot of fun. I love that. You also mentioned on your Instagram that you were adding some stories from your kids of what it was like to have a mom in the yes. toy industry. Yes, they've all written, 
they've all written and given me a picture. I've got a current picture of them. I've got, I've also in my previous book, which will be in the new one, I've got pictures of them as kids, mm -hmm. but now I've got them as adults holding their favorite toy that I designed. I love that. Which uh, is kind of fun. And they're telling their stories. And it's interesting too, because my uh, oldest son was six or seven when I got into the mm -hmm. toy industry. And he was, um, you know, so he went through his a little bit, he was a little bit older. Mm -hmm. And um, by the time, well, you know, then he grew up and got married and left home. And uh, his, the influence of my career was a little, was a little bit different than it was on my two younger who were both born while I was a toy designer. Mm -hmm. uh, my youngest was born, um, you know, literally at Tonka and my old, my second, uh, second of the youngest was born when I was at Mattel. So they've done, they've known nothing but me as a, a toy designer. So it's really fun to see their points of view. So you just talked about, you know, technology changing and there's a section in your book about that. I've got one last question kind of before okay. we wrap up and go. What is something that you would love to see continue to change or be brought to the future of the toy industry? Mm. I know that's a broad question. I know it's a, kind of a big, broad question. Yeah, um, I, I have mixed feelings about the toy, especially the doll industry. Mm -hmm. And I'm... I'm, I don't, I, I love innovation, you know, mm -hmm. I love new things. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed, because I've been in the toy industry for so long, and I've, and before that, I was a collector. So mm -hmm. I've been, you know, I know quite a bit about dolls and toys and things from generations past. Mm -hmm. And you see trends that, that come and go. And, um, one of the things that's hard for me is seeing something that I think is so trendy that I'm afraid it will be out of style in another year. And so I would, you know, I, I, you know, my personal style is not edgy. You know, I've had to learn how to do things that are a little more edgy, but you know, I think by nature, my style is cute, mm -hmm. cute, sweet. And so, and I, and I'm also, interested in kids being a mom and a grandma mm -hmm. you know I love kids and and like the idea of of, th of things that they can play with that kind of stand the test of time mm -hmm. I mean when you look at my little pony it stood the test of time hasn't it I mean it's just as fresh even though they've updated the style mm -hmm. and think the idea is just mm -hmm. as fresh as it was 35 mm -hmm. years ago so, you know, I like that kind of thing, kind of those toys that are evergreen. Mm -hmm. um, and so I tend to kind of shy away from products that are very faddish. Mm -hmm. So I guess I would like to see maybe a little bit more of a return to toys and playthings that are a little bit more classic. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in a snobbish way because, you know, it, it doesn't have to go back to the 50s, really. Right. I'm not oh, saying yeah. that. But, but, you know, when you think about the magical toys of the 80s, and I think about Strawberry Shortcake and Rose mm -hmm. Petal Place and Cherry Mary Muffin and Rainbow Bright, I mean, they were happy Care Bears. Mm -hmm. They were happy, beautiful colors, cheerful. You know, they had a story. Even think, you know, the Strawberry Shortcake had their story and, mm -hmm. and, and moon dreamers had their story they might have a villain but they have the hero and mm -hmm. you know there's just something classical and eternal about that and so and perhaps that's the reason i've never really gotten into fashion and fashion dolls mm -hmm. because 
they are a little more sophisticated, but they also are dated in a very mm-hmm. short time because yes. you, look at, you look at a Barbie from the 70s or 80s and it's very different from a current fashionista or, oh, yeah. you know, any of the, the current dolls. So, you know, that that's kind of, I just like to see a little bit more bringing back some, some of the younger, sweeter things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it may never happen and that's okay too. But mm-hmm. I... You know, I love kids and I want to see them happy and enjoy being young and youthful and innocent for a long time. Yeah, I, I'm still a big proponent of let kids be kids and play with toys and have fun uh, and do those things. I was excited on your Toy Fair wrap up on your Instagram to see that you included the new Care Bears because I love yeah. the new art style. But like they're still the same Care Bears yes, that I yeah. grew up with. I actually just I think he's right here. But uh just, I've got the new grumpy bear. Oh, he's, uh, and he he's, does look. He looks he does, just. Yeah. He has the spirit of the original Care Bear. He does, and they even kept the little things like the hard charm on yes. the rump. Yes. And that's the thing you said with My Little Pony is I, I mean, I had. Uh, we just went through boxes of them. I think I had almost all of the original My Little Pony line up there, like My Little Pony Tales. And it's one of those things that, like, my sibling and I loved ponies, and we watched a little bit of the new one, and I went. It's the same ponies, just different characters, but the same. But it's still ponies just for a new group of kids. So I agree agree with you that sometimes we just, you know, I think people also take for granted how important toys are to kids and what tools they are to to, uh, how they become adults. And, you know, I love seeing kids that still like to play with baby dolls because it teaches nurturing and just lovely things. There's... I'm, I'm a, I guess it's as an adult, I'm still a big proponent of play with toys. You never really outgrow toys unless you let yourself outgrow them. So, you know, I, I don't think I really understood uh, in a deep way how significant toys were until I became part of this toy collecting community mm-hmm. in the last couple of years and started hearing from people who were telling me their stories about why some of the toys that I designed or others designed meant mm-hmm. so much to them. And it might have been, you know, unhappy home life. It might have mm-hmm. been, you know, a disability or social awkwardness or whatever reason that this toy became their escape in their world. And that you can't know how much that means to me when I hear yeah. somebody share a story with me about a toy that meant something to them personally because. For me, it's always been about the kids. Mm -hmm. It's not about making the best-selling toy, winning awards, getting famous. You know, I never did this ever to see my name on a box or anything. We don't get any recognition, and that's fine. But it's always about the kids, and I still feel that way. I love that. Oh, and I just... I don't think there's a better way to end than that. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Now, uh, where can everyone find you online? Because I want everyone to go check out everything you have to offer right now. Like right now, pull over, (laughs) go check it out. Where can they find you online? Okay, you can find me uh, on Instagram. I post a toy I design on Instagram every day, well, six days a week. Uh, And my account is at Steph Designs Toys, and it's Steph with an F, not a PH, Steph Designs Toys. I also have my own personal account, which has drawn artwork that I do that's not toy related. It's got my personal photos, travels. I'm a photographer, you know, grandkids, all that stuff. And that's just Steph Designs. I also am a collector, so I collect a variety of things in addition to toys, books, and 
pottery and that Steph collects stuff. And then I have a website, stephanieeskanderdesign.com. So that's where you can find me. And we will share all of that on our social media when this episode comes out. So because you're also a collector now, I have to ask, because we have a lot of collectors that listen, and I'm tangentially in the collecting uh, kind of side of things. Do you have like a grail item that you're looking for right now? Like something you are just determined to find and it has evaded you just a that's little bit? That's an interesting question because... Um, I have a collector blog, which is still active. I should mention that. It's called The Copycat Collector. I posted, this was, went from 2012 to 2013. I posted a different collection every day for a year. And I put five days a week, I did my own collections. And then on the weekend, I would feature someone else's collections. Love that. And we had a big house in California. I had lots of room to show my collections off. And then in 2012, late 2012, mm -hmm. I took a job um, in New Jersey, went to work for Toys R Us, and we rented out our house, put everything in storage, and moved to a one-bedroom apartment in New Jersey. Oh, my God. And so, you know, eventually we moved to Utah, where we live now, got everything out of storage, but now we live in a small townhouse. Mm -hmm. And so you can see behind me, my studio is jam-packed full of stuff. Yep. And I have some collections, but I think my days of really actively collecting are over, but Great. something really exciting happened. I, we have things that we've got in our garage, we put away in our garage, and I recently unveiled some boxes and found some toys that I designed that I thought were gone, and I found this wonderful red and white tin it's like a doll, it's, it's designed for like an 18-inch doll, it's like mm -hmm. a little dolly cupboard that's... Um, is tin. It's probably from mm -hmm. the early fifties. And I always had it on display at my house with my chatty Kathy dolls and all my tin stuff. And I found it, I thought it was gone. And so I can't wait to put it in my studio and set it up with all my little doll dishes. And so even though I'm not buying anything right at this time, but I just found it. So it's like a grail. So oh, I love that. That's so that's so exciting because it's always I do the same thing. I've being a theater human, I feel like I've moved so many times in like the last 15 years that I, every time I go, why are we doing this again? And I, this last time I um I was just home over the summer and we were opening boxes from my grandmother's house and she passed away in 2005. So like years ago, and there were just some things that I thought had gone missing that were deep childhood memories yeah. and we opened a box and it was a Fievel from Fievel Goes West. It had the plastic head, but the soft body opened the trunk and he was sitting right on top and I about wept because I just went, oh, I haven't, oh, oh. <laughs> and so he came back to Florida yeah. with me when I made the big yeah. move this summer. <laughs> yeah, that sounds familiar. That's what a great feeling. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Maddie, for inviting of me. Of course. Can't wait to uh, get acquainted with all of your your friends and your fans and your followers through your, your station. Show will be right back after these messages. Hey there, Screen Beans. Have you heard about Screen Snark? Rachel, this is an ad break. They aren't Screen Beans until they listen to the show. Fine. Potential Screen Beans. You like movies and TV shows, right? I mean, who doesn't? 
Screen Snark is a casual conversation about the movies and television shows that are shaping us as we live our everyday lives. That's right, Matt. We have a chat with at least one incredible guest every episode, hailing from all walks. We've interviewed chefs, writers, costumers, musicians, yoga teachers, comedians, burlesque dancers, folks in the film and TV industry, and more. We'd be delighted for you to join us every other Monday on the Certain POV Podcast Network. Or wherever you get your podcasts, fresh and tasty off the presses. What? That's... No, that's not... Can I call them screen beans now? Fine. Screen beans! So tune in and we'll see you at the movies or on a couch somewhere. Because you're a whole screen beans now. Aurora! I hope you enjoyed the first Serial Killer Radio Hour with Stephanie Iskander. I had so much fun sitting down with her, and we will be bringing you interviews with amazing media people, designers, anyone that helps you access the nostalgia of your childhood periodically throughout our series. Our next will be with indie wrestler sensation DJ Summers as he and I sit down and talk about Power Rangers, nerddom, and the power of queerness through representation. I really think you're going to enjoy it. As always, don't forget to like, subscribe, download, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us across social media to continue the conversation that we started in today's episode. Join us on Discourse, where you can meet other serial killers and dreamers like yourselves. Now join us next time for another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.